2: Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer Worldwide. I'm Libby Zneimer. Call it a timely tale, Lawrence Hill's follow-up to his bestseller, The Book of Negroes, was released this week. It's called The Illegal and it's inspired by the real-life struggle of refugees around the world. Lawrence will join me today. Plus... Nick Nanos, Dale Goldhawk, and Jane Brown are here for another gathering of our special Zoomer election panel. We'll go through the results of this week's polls and recap the major events on the campaign trail. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. After a major Supreme Court decision here in Canada, the conversation about the right to die continues around the world. In the United States, the California Assembly narrowly passed a bill that will allow terminally ill patients to end their lives with a doctor's supervision. It's the fifth U.S. state to pass such legislation. Meanwhile, members of Parliament in the United Kingdom rejected a similar proposal. In a free vote in the Commons, 330 MPs said no to a plan to allow terminally ill adults to end their lives, while only 118 were in favor. Should your commute be counted as part of your workday? According to the European Court of Justice, the answer is yes, at least if your job involves traveling to see your clients instead of working out of an office. It's a landmark ruling, and it's great news for caregivers – as well as plumbers and sales reps. It means they will officially be on the clock when they get in their cars to start their day. The judgment came after a review of employment practices at the Spanish security firm Tyco. According to court documents, Tyco employees who installed security systems would sometimes have to drive upwards of three hours to get to their first appointment, but the company didn't consider them on the clock until they were at the job site. Saving for retirement is a tough task for most people, but for stay-at-home moms and dads, it's a real challenge. A new survey by the Transamerica Center for Retirement Studies has found that two-thirds of American homemakers are not prepared for retirement and more than half have no strategy at all. The overwhelming majority of homemakers in the U.S. are women, and they are at an even greater risk for financial insecurity in retirement because they're more likely to outlive their spouses. I'm Louise Nymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Our lengthy 78-day campaign shifted into a higher gear this week, marked by a shifting of party standings. The Liberals seem to be pulling ahead while Conservative and NDP support is dropping. At week's end, that added up to a dead heat with all three parties within a single percent of each other. Where is it leading? I checked in with our Zoomer election panel, Polster Nick Nanos of Nanos Research, Dale Goldhawk of Goldhawk Fights Back, and Associate News Director and Morning News Anchor Jane Brown.
3: We have the, the Liberals and the Conservatives basically in a dead heat, 309 30.8%, and the NDP at 29.9% nationally. You know, the interesting trend in the first part of the campaign, and we can empirically see and know this, is that Justin Trudeau's personal brand has improved. At the beginning of the campaign, he was at around 22% in terms of preferred prime minister. Now he's up to 29%, so he's up seven points. And the Liberals have moved the numbers in in terms of them being very competitive now. So we've got a real tight race, and uh, it's anyone's guess as to what will happen on October the 19th.
1: I think there's sort of an impression that Justin Trudeau seems to be the most truthful of the leaders, the most transparent, the most easy to stop down and have a real conversation. He takes Questions from hecklers at his news conference. Mm -hmm. He doesn't try to brush them off. And he's been honest about running a deficit. I see that deficit thing as a deliberate way
2: to differentiate him from the other two parties. Uh, Nick, how do you think that's playing?
3: Well, you know, I think it's one of the things where even if people don't uh, like what's being said and don't like deficits, I think the fact that uh, Justin Trudeau has put that on the table, the liberals are banking on a level of truthfulness and transparency in terms of, let's be realistic, we may have to run a deficit.
0: And the parliamentary budget officer has already said that uh, we're heading towards a a billion dollar deficit anyway. That doesn't exactly square with what the uh, Conservatives have been saying. But it's kind of interesting, isn't it? The campaign tactic now is to try to go with the truth.
2: (laughs) (laughs) If it's a billion dollar deficit, uh, a little bit of number crunching could Get rid of it. I
0: mean, it's, yeah, it's just it's a billion. A rounding billion. Error, exactly. It. Yeah, it's only a billion.
2: Again, in terms of the trend, we saw Tom Mulcair really strong. Do you see this as the beginning of a slide for him?
3: Well, you know, there's still a pretty good upside for the New Democrats in terms of accessible voters. But what, we're, what we've seen a bit is a bit of a flattening of the, uh, of the Tom Mulcair trend. And, you know, it's the momentum and direction that we look at. So it's going to be interesting to see, you know, as we continue in the tracking, whether the Liberals can continue to try to build momentum and, and what the other parties do. You know, the interesting thing is, uh, as soon as there was a focus on a potential NDP win, one of the regions where we saw the NDP numbers slide was Ontario.
1: Right, because yeah. I, I think that Canadians are not quite ready to fully embrace the idea of a NDP federal government. I mean, it's okay early on in the campaign to sort of play around and muse that idea, but I think when push comes to shove, it's too soon. But what strikes me is that the NDP is centrist, it's the Liberals that seem
2: to be staking out the left. right? Mm-hmm.
3: And there are a lot of vote, I'll call them vote swingers, between the Liberals and the New Democrats right now, where, you know, when you ask Canadians who their second choice is, uh, if you're a Liberal, it's like half of those folks would can, would have the NDP as their second choice and vice versa. If the campaign breaks, either in favor of the New Democrats or the Liberals, I predict that we're going to see the numbers move really fast because... That'll be the kind of the key focus of the, the the one counterpoint to Stephen Harper. But right now, it's kind of like, it's, it's almost like the conservative plan, right? Split, keep the opposition split mm-hmm. so that there isn't one key challenger, because the numbers show if there is one key challenger, it will surely mean defeat for the conservatives.
1: Well, it'll because- be interesting to see uh, this coming week with the change-up as well in some of the conservative campaign people, the bringing in of this Wizard of Oz, this Linton Crosby from Australia, if they try to focus Harper on staying with the economy as the big issue.
0: It'll be interesting to see as well what traction the refugee issue has. Is it going to continue or have we reached the peak in terms of the news coverage, the emotion, the passion of this whole uh, terrible episode in 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 Europe? And if so, uh, that won't be around to haunt the Tories any longer.
3: And you know what? I'm sure Stephen Harper is happy to have the attack ads focus on his hair. (laughs) (laughs) Like, if Justin Trudeau and Tom Mulcair both decided they're going to hammer on the refugee crisis, then it would be in the news because... Everyone wants to equally cover all three campaigns. But uh, if they pivot off to other things, then it's a buy for the conservatives.
1: Jane, what do you think? And not only that, I think that it's early enough in the campaign that voters will forget by the time five weeks goes by that Harper came up with a plan, which he says he's going to do in the next couple of days. That will have been forgotten, that it came a few days later than what the other two leaders were saying. You know, Harper says refugees, yes, but we also have to
2: fight ISIS. Tom Mulcair said that he would withdraw Canadian troops, that we would not be fighting ISIS. Uh, Nick, is that an issue people care about?
3: Well, you know, the thing is, is for the Conservatives, you have to think of every issue that's out there, they try to link back to fiscal stewardship or security. You know, for Tom Mulcair... You know, he's had a very clear position on kind of pulling troops out of the fight on, uh, against ISIL. And uh, he believes that's a key wedge issue because he knows that uh, Justin Trudeau and the Liberals have kind of hedged their position on this and that, that they're not as clear.
2: To wrap things up, uh, we're obviously in a new phase of the campaign. Uh, Nick, what are you going to be looking for in the coming weeks, say?
3: I'm going to be focusing on the, on the race in Ontario and British Columbia. I think the reality is is that the, the numbers have been uh, moving in both of those provinces, and there are a lot of seats at stake. I think once we get into the other regions like Atlantic Canada, Quebec, and the prairies, that we know generally what's going to happen. We might not know the magnitude.
0: Dale? I'll be watching for whether or not any party really has the potential for forming a majority government. And I'm
1: looking forward to seeing the dancing of Stephen Harper and his team. I think that Mulcair and Trudeau have cemented their messages, so they are going to remain on message. And I think we're going to see something change in the conservative campaign. Okay. Election panel, thanks
2: so much, and we will talk again soon. Great. Thank you. Bye-bye. We'll be bringing you more gatherings of our special Zoomer election panel in the weeks to come. I'm Louise Neimer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Author Lawrence Hill is back with a follow-up to his bestseller, The Book of Negroes. It's titled The Illegal, and it tells the tale of an undocumented refugee living in poverty. He'll join me next. It's the most anticipated novel of the season, and the story could be ripped from the headlines. An elite runner is forced to flee his homeland and live as an undocumented refugee in a neighboring country with a harsh immigration policy. That's the plot of Lawrence Hill's new book, The Illegal, the follow-up to his blockbuster Book of Negroes. The story may be set in the fictional countries of Zantoroland, and freedom state, but it has a real resonance in the here and now. Lawrence Hill dropped by our studios before the book's official launch earlier this week. Lawrence Hill, thanks so much for joining us.
4: Libby, I'm delighted to be here. The timing is a little unusual for sure, but the the refugee issues have been building for, for many years, and you don't have 4 million refugees in Syria happening overnight. I'm glad, if, if it means it... Um, Canadians sort of have a chance through fiction to have a glimpse at what a life of a refugee might look like. And this is a thoroughly imagined story with an imaginary character. But still, there's something about empathy and imagination that goes a long way in stirring action. We have, among us, in Canada and in other Western nations, the States, France, UK, millions of people who are living without papers.
2: You've been working on the book for five years. So what particular situation motivated you on this theme?
4: Well there were two things really that got me going. One was my life as a runner because you know there's a lot of running in this book and there's an elite marathoner and I was never elite but I ran many marathons and halves and ten k's and the like and competed for many years. Uh, but but uh, in terms of the refugee issues, what got me going was traveling several times to Berlin in the 1980s to visit my late sister, Karen, who lived there, who was getting to know the Afro-German community. And I started to meet through my sister various Sudanese expats who were living statelessly in West Berlin, uh, not able to work, but not able to get their lives going. And the guy my sister got involved with had been a political cartoonist in Sudan. There was a coup d'etat. He had to flee Sudan. So what's he doing to to earn Deutschmark on the streets of uh, Berlin in the 1980s. He's drawing a caricature in 15 seconds, as I'm sure you've seen people do in Madrid and Paris and Berlin. So watching how stateless Sudanese kind of organized themselves in Berlin in the 1980s uh, started um, the process, really, of me imagining a novel about stateless people. So it's been gestating for some time.
2: I was also reminded in the story of your brother, Dan Hill, who, of course, is a— big friend of the station, because he is also a runner, and you introduced a complication where Keita, the lead character, comes down with diabetes, and, and Dan has diabetes. Tell me a bit about that.
4: Yeah, and I, I have diabetes, too, and, uh, and and run with it. And and so I, th- I think one of the things that we often don't imagine is that... Th- If you can picture, as we've all been able to, the the thousands of people on the march through Hungary on the way to Germany, many of these people are probably carrying little problems with them. We often fail to imagine that people who are on the move like this have all sorts of ailments and issues and illnesses that kind of go neglected or unattended. So Keita Ali is this uh, refugee who's fled a, a poor, violent nation and tried to find refuge in a rich nation, and he's got undiagnosed diabetes, and he thinks it's his running problems that he's encountering are related to his hernia. He has a small hernia, but actually he's he's troubled by something much graver than a hernia, which can be fixed pretty easily. What about issues of race in the book? Obviously, it's pretty central. Well, they are. I mean, I think race and legality are kind of intermixed. I think that this novel is, is more a meditation on statelessness and on class than it is on race. But, of course, when you're stateless and you're also black and you're in a nation that's devoted to deporting undocumented refugees, your race will will play into your problems for sure. So they are, I think, inextricable. But really, my main interests in this book in developing Qaeda are not sort of figuring out or dramatizing or coloring in a way his race as I am trying to color and dramatize his social situation as an undocumented refugee in a nation that that is devoted to to deporting them, and I've I've put him in a country that's elected a government that 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 campaigned on a platform to to deport, you know, so-called illegal peoples into bulldoze the community where they live, which is called Africatown. I put the novel two years in the future, and um, and created two lands where the novel takes place that I invented. In order for the reader to sort of buy the idea of a dystopia that we've created a world, I've created a world where really we fast forward to the worst possible uh, intolerance in terms of refugees and immigrants and and, and how hard it must be for people to get going in that climate. Uh,
2: On the other side of the race issues that came up in the book with the young boy, you also talk about it being difficult for people of mixed race who look fairly white to get... Uh, to identify as black.
4: Well, John Falconer is a 15-year-old sort of whiz kid who's living in Town and he's actually a legal resident of, of uh, Freedom State, but he lives with this very poor mother who suffers, you know, from mental illness who's in the hospital. He's, like many people, you know, who come from this background, as, as I do, he's sort of bending over backwards to prove himself and trying to be more black than the blacks around him. And I say that playfully with a bit of a smile. And the way he does that, of course, is to mount this documentary, this film documentary, to sort of testify to the struggles that peoples from Zantoral are having as, as undocumented refugees in Freedom State and what life is like in this community called AfricTown. What are you hoping people take
2: away from the book? Well, like,
4: I mean, you have to be careful as a novelist. You don't want to preach and you don't want to sound like you're at a pulpit and you don't want people to think this is the lesson and you're going to take some medicine that's going to be good for you because that's the best way to get somebody to snap a book shut and never keep reading. But I suppose if if there's an underlying hope, it would be that the novel kind of electrify your imagination and give you the ability to imagine more vigorously with more empathy with more color and vision just what the life of a so-called illegal person what that life might look like where you're from what your parents might have been doing how you came there and if we can think more deeply and imagine the lives of these people that we might we might find you know more profound ways to integrate them into our own country so that they can get on with their lives and we with ours
2: okay lawrence hill thanks so much thank you The Illegal is published by HarperCollins. I'm Libby Zneimer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. In just a moment, we'll return with music from Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Welcome back to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Zneimer. It's time for your international arts book tips
1: for those of you who are jetting around the world. Here's Jane Brown. In New York City, it's a story about life. Laugh It Up, Stare It Down is a play which follows a couple from their first meeting through old age with many crazy challenges along the way. It's at the Cherry Lane Theater on Commerce Street. The Art Institute of Chicago offers a glimpse into one of the world's most intimate religious traditions, Gates of the Lord, the Tradition of Krishna Paintings, is the first major U.S. exhibition to explore the unique visual culture of the Hindu denomination in Western India. To London, England, where Benedict Cumberbatch continues to wow audiences. The popular British actor stars in Shakespeare's Hamlet at the Barbican Theatre. And in Rome, the iconic works of David LaChapelle combine the Renaissance period with today's pop culture. They're on view at the Exposition Palace. I'm Jane Brown, and that's the International Arts Book.
2: This week, one of Canada's most celebrated musicians, David Clayton Thomas, is celebrating his 74th birthday. Like so many Toronto-based musicians from the Zoomer generation, he began his career gigging in Yorkville clubs and on the Yonge Street Strip. His talent was noticed by another local musician, Ronnie Hawkins, who took Clayton Thomas under his wing. He introduced him to the right people, and it wasn't long before David was fronting his own band and performing alongside people like John Lee Hooker. It was Hooker who took him to New York City, where he performed in front of Judy Collins. She was so impressed by his sound that she called her friend, drummer Bobby Colombi. His band, Blood, Sweat & Tears, had just broken up shortly after releasing its debut album. Colombi was taken by David Clayton Thomas's voice. He got his band back together and the rest as they say is history. Blood Sweat and Tears went on to record a number of hit singles and studio albums and since then, David Clayton-Thomas has had a very successful career as a solo blues and jazz singer. Right now we'll hear the iconic song from Blood Sweat and Tears eponymous debut with David Clayton-Thomas. Here is Spin and Wheel. That was Blood, Sweat and Tears with Spinning Wheel. David Clayton Thomas is celebrating his 74th birthday this weekend. And that brings us to the end of another edition of the Zoomer Weekend Review. I'm Libby Zneimer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide.
0: You've been listening to the Zoomer Weekend Review. Produced by MZ Media Limited. Executive producer, Moses Zneimer. Produced by Paul Thomas program director, John Bandrea. This has been an
1: exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on AM 740 Zoomer Radio.
0: This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.